Uh, Happy New Year, everyone. And uh, that intro sounded a little bit like a boxing match. I don't know if I should be a little bit in the blue corner. Um, uh, yeah, Happy New Year. Happy New Year if you're uh, watching online. Um, grab your Bible if you've got one with you. We're going to be looking at John chapter 5. Um, but I just wanted to say hi to a few people online first. I've just been looking at live chat. So lots of love to you uh, all. Um, just wanted to say, uh, just wanted to pray for Ian and Carol, actually. I think you're there. Um, I just want to say Happy New Year to, to you guys. And just want to pray, Lord God, bless Ian and Carol abundantly in the name of Jesus. I pray this year they would know your closeness, they would know answers to prayer, they'd know fruitfulness, they'd know your presence with them right now. And uh, Sammy, just want to say hello to you and pray for you as well. Uh, Sammy, I just felt the Lord was reminding you uh, that you are a daughter of the King of Kings and he, he has heard you, he's hearing you right now uh, and he will hear you and he cares, and he's going to reveal his goodness. Lord, I pray for Sammy, and I pray, Lord, for kind of fresh knowledge of your kindness, that, uh, that you know her, that you draw near to her, that you care, that you give her your attention. Um, Lord, bless her, Lord God. Be magnified in, in you, Sammy, I pray in Jesus' name. Um, and a happy new year to Judith and others who uh, have been on the, on the live chat. We're in, we're in John chapter 5. Uh, you might have to cast your mind back sometime now, before Christmas when we were last here. I think Blessam was preaching on the beginning of, uh, of John chapter 5. So just by way of a little refresher, uh, that was the occasion where Jesus in Jerusalem uh, saw a man who had been disabled, unable to walk uh, for 38 years and lying beside a pool. And Jesus sees him. Uh, and Jesus uh, ultimately says, get up, take your mat and go home. And the man is, is healed um, and it causes a bit of a stir. And we're going to pick up the thread uh, by reading from uh, John uh, chapter 5 and verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath... The Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he's pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honour the Son, just as they honour the Father. He who does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come 
when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who've done good will rise to live, and those who've done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. You've sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John, for the very work that the Father has given me to finish, and which I am doing, testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor did his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you, I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set." If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? All the time when we've been going through John's uh, gospel together, um, I suppose simply we have been considering a massive question, a central question, who is Jesus? Every single time he is, every single time we turn to the passage, he is revealed to us. We, we see, we learn something about who Jesus is. We've had that right from the outset. Uh, in the beginning was the Word. A man called uh, Peter Lewis wrote, as the Word, he is, and speaking of Jesus, as the Word, he is and always has been all that God has to say about himself. Jesus, the, the revelation speaking to us of God, as well as being the one through whom everything was made, the one through whom the whole universe was created. You can go through that first opening section of chapter, chapter one and just see so much packed into there as, as to who Jesus is. There's a phrase that crops up on a couple of occasions, chapter one, verse 14, and in verse 17 as well. He's the one who is full of grace and truth, revealing the Father, revealing what God is like, and he's revealing grace. 
this abundant, overflowing kindness. And we've, we've seen that in so many different ways. God's kindness in a wedding, turning water into wine, kind of protecting that family and blessing them with an abundance, undeserved, over-the-top generosity. That is God being revealed. We've seen it in him uh, reaching into someone's life and, and even in that passage that we looked at last time, seeing someone laid beside a pool who's, who's been unable to work, uh, walk, unable to walk and unable to work, um, for, for 38 years. And he says, get up, take your mat and go home. This royal official in chapter 4 just pesters him. Come back to my place. You know, my, my, my son is dying. And, um, and Jesus, full of grace and truth, just says the word, you can go. He'll be healed. Just incredible Kindness, incredible generosity, um, and, and, a, and a relentless commitment to truth. We might kind of want in our day and age to, to kind of just pick, pick one or the other. Just speak about the kindness thing. Just, just do that. Let's be grace. Grace, grace, doesn't matter. Anything goes. No, that's not what grace means. But anyway, we can, we can choose a, a simplified, reduced version of what we like. But committed, fully committed to grace and truth. So comes into the temple uh, in chapter 2. Having turned water into wine, uh, the next moment we're, we're transported to the next situation and he's in the temple overturning the tables, scattering um, the, the, the money of all those who are trading and, and are, are, are making the temple into a corrupt venue for money-making, exploiting those who've come to worship. Utterly committed to grace and truth, this can't be. He overturns the, t- the, the, the tables. He turns things up. Utterly committed to truth when he speaks to Nicodemus in the middle of the night. You're a, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things. Of course you've got to be born again. The, these, these sharp, incisive words, full of grace, full of truth. That's who he is. And if that's our central question, understanding who Jesus is, um, then uh, corresponding to that, we consider, well, well, how do we respond? And we've seen some amazing responses. We, we've seen the, uh, the incredible promise that starts, that opens up the book in, uh, in chapter 1, verse 12, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, uh, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And so John, in writing the gospel, is putting his, his intention, his, his agenda right there at the outset. I'm writing this because I want you to receive him, believe in his name, and have the life of being a part of God's family, born of God, alive to God. That's how he starts, and he'll, uh, he'll conclude uh, this gospel uh, reiterating the, the, same, the same promise in, uh, in chapter 20. And in verse, in verse 30, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. These are just like selected highlights. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life 
in his name. So as we get into this gospel, it's, it's, it's opening a door to us. And as we believe and receive Jesus as a son of God, we go through that door into a whole new life, into a whole new way of living that is for now and forever. And so we see, um, we see uh, positive responses to Jesus in these early uh, early chapters. We see, we see John the Baptist saying like, uh, words like, look, he sees Jesus, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Kind of pointing like Richard has reminded us. We've got that signpost around here somewhere. John being that signpost saying, look to him. He's the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. We then see the, the positive response of the disciples. We found the Messiah. Come see. Uh, Nathaniel um, then uh, uh, meets Jesus and says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Nicodemus, kind of cautiously positive. We know you're a teacher come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God weren't with him. He's not quite going as far yet as saying, you're the Messiah, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. But he's saying, God's with you. And that's kind of got under Nicodemus' skin. And we see later on um, uh, his response uh, to, to Jesus, that, a, a positive response. We, we visited a village in, in Samaria. Jesus sits down beside a well. And uh, there's a Samaritan woman. They have this conversation. So she ends up going back and says, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? You know, in a way, she's been exposed. In a way, Jesus knows about her life and her background and some of the mess and some of the, uh, the confusion that she lives with. But she's undone in a good way. Wow. Full of grace and full of truth. I've, I've met him. And then she, she becomes like the greatest advert. She just goes back to her village. Um, everyone comes and they know who she is, but she's met someone special and they all come out to hear him. And we saw how in, in that particular village, Jesus does no miraculous sign, but they're just so eager, they respond to him. And then the whole village is saying, now we've heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Can you see how it's every time, every passage, it mounts up and it mounts up. The word of God, full of grace and truth, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Israel. The one that God is with, the Christ, the saviour of the world. These positive responses. Now as we come into chapter 5, we start to see more the the negative responses. Those whose whose life or their world is is interrupted. There's something that happens here in chapter 5. That gets up some people's noses. And so for the next few chapters, we, we see not just the positive response that's been there, not just the kind of cautious, reserved response of Nicodemus. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll keep paying attention. I'll, I'll, I'll keep listening in. I'm not totally convinced just yet. bit hesitant, bit cautious, bit reserved. We see full-blown, hostile, official opposition um, as we enter into this scenario but we need to keep the same questions in mind who is Jesus and how do we respond 
And firstly, if we see uh, in this passage who Jesus is, well, more the question, what's Jesus like? And we see utterly courageous, full of compassion, and utterly courageous. He's, he's had compassion on this man that he's just healed by saying, get up, take your mat and go home. And to do that was also utterly courageous, crazy brave. What do you mean? Well, well, some of what we've seen Jesus do is kind of behind closed doors. There's a, there's a small number of people who are in the know and aware of what Jesus has done and have that positive response and put their, their faith in him. So we've seen water turned into wine. Think back to that scenario, the wedding, Cana in Galilee. Galilee. Who really knows what it is that Jesus did? Actually, not that many people. It's a few servants who followed the instructions, and it's the disciples. And you get to the end of that little, uh, little, uh, that passage, and what's the result of it? The disciples, you know, Jesus revealed his glory, and the disciples put their faith in him. That's the impact that that particular miracle had. I mean, it blessed lots of people, but it was, just, it was the disciples it affected long-term, if you like. They, put their, they learned to put their faith in Jesus that day. And it wasn't that long ago that we saw the royal official make that big journey, go and find Jesus and say, please come home, please come back, you know, pl- travel with me 20 odd miles. We've got to get back to my place because uh, my son is about to die. And how did Jesus respond in that situation? Just said the word. You can go. He'll be healed. What's the result? The man goes home and speaks to his family. His servants speak to him and say, yeah, it's precisely at the time, they work it out afterwards, it was precisely at the time that you were meeting with Jesus and he said that, that your son improved and was healed. What's the result? He and his household put their faith in Jesus. They believed. And there's something beautiful about that, something so tender that Jesus, I'm just going to get those out of the way so I'm going to trip up. Um, Jesus isn't using people as some theatrical prop to conduct some big magic show to say, look at how amazing I am. Look, I've put this family on display for everyone to be aware of. And yeah, maybe we've, we could be aware, maybe of a very genuine, powerful, uh, anointed ministry um, where someone might be praying for the sick and they really are healed. But at the same time, they've kind of been put on show. Made a, made a public, public spectacle. Jesus can be compassionate, discreet. He's not, he's not hunting for the crowd. He's not kind of just always trying to raise his own profile. He says, no, let's get away from the crowd sometimes. I'm going to do something special just for you. Not many other people are going to know about it, but here is my abundant blessing for you. And that's what he's like. God amongst us. Not always with great fanfare, just discreetly working in different lives. Able to, able to answer prayer amazingly and bring life just to that household. But he's not always doing that. Why this cause is such a stir? Because Jesus has gone up to Jerusalem 
and has very publicly healed someone for lots of people to observe, including his opponents. And we find out from the passage, he's done it on the Sabbath, which is like breaking the law, really, in, in the eyes of those who opposed him. Um, not only that, but he's kind of encouraged this other guy to break the Sabbath. You shouldn't be carrying your mat, they say to him, because that's breaking the law on the day of rest. Well, he, the man who healed me told me to pick up my mat. I did what I was told. I've stood, stood up for the first time in 38 years. I thought, well, I might as well do the other bit too. So it's highly provocative in a way that might seem strange to us about what you are and aren't allowed to do when, okay, we, we do this when we gather, we, we get together, that's a bit unusual culturally, but uh, you know, what we might consider the Sabbath it can often be a day just like any other, so we think, yeah, we rest here and there, but that, it doesn't kind of confront us as this massive issue, but, but for them it would have been huge. They would have gone to, um, uh, they could have gone to Exodus uh, 31 and verse 14 to God's word, observe the Sabbath because it, because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it must be put to death. Whoever does any work on that day must be cut off from his people. So those watching what Jesus is doing, seeing what he's just done, will be thinking about this verse. Just thinking, how dare he do that? Um, they may also then have been thinking about Leviticus uh, chapter 24 and verse 17. No, is it that one or is it another one? Oh, I've confused myself with this one. <laughs> oh, okay. It's about blasphemy. Verse 16. Leviticus 24, verse 16, anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. The entire assembly must stone him. Whether an alien or native-born, when he blasphemes the name, he must be put to death. It's pretty unequivocal. Um, so in, for Jesus to call, refer to God as his father, my father is always at his work to this very day, so I too... And working. He's just made it worse. You've already broken the law, Jesus. You've already done something on the Sabbath. You've encouraged somebody else to break the law and pick up their mat. And now you're saying that God is your father personally. That's kind of a lot of red lines that have just been crossed. That's a lot of no-nos. So we can see why um, they, they think the right thing to do is to kill him. And it might be tricky for us to identify with that, but let's just see about Jesus. There is no trace of timidity. There's no cowardice. He will privately and personally and, and discreetly bless a household. And he will publicly, unashamedly, without embarrassment or caution, he will reach into someone else's life and, and heal them, even if it means he's going to become the target of hatred and anger. That is courageous. And maybe where we can identify with that is where the, cult, the cultural experience, the cultural pressure that we experience that, that, that says to us or whispers or shouts, 
That faith you have in Jesus, just keep it private. Keep it yourself. Maybe you can gather with like-minded individuals and, and do that thing that you need to do. Pray, read the Bible, whatever. But really, that faith is, a, is only really in the private sphere. It can affect your household. It can, yeah. But it jolly well better not affect any further than that. So you, you, know, you, don't, you don't take it to work with you. You've got to operate by a different code there. Um, uh, and in society at large. It might be more subtle than I'm presenting. But don't we know something of that? And isn't that just turned up all the more at the moment? Okay, it's subtle, maybe. Be cautious. Don't see anyone that you don't have to. Like, mix with people that really matter to you. Uh, forgive my kind of paraphrase of the sorts of messages that, that, that float about uh, nowadays. Just that, that constant note of caution, which could cause God's people always just to be kind of just turning in. Better do what we're told. Better be cautious, be cautious, be cautious. That's like the only message. And we could just kind of give, give way to that. Think, yeah, what we're doing right now is kind of public. But, but other than that, it's best if we keep a low profile, really. Don't, don't go ruffling any feathers by actually living out your faith in some public way. Jesus is, is totally out there. Now, I don't know if I'll get told off for this, but um, when Jesus, on that other occasion, you know, Jesus goes into the temple. Jesus is going to clear the temple. What does he do? He doesn't fill out a form and put it in a suggestion box. He doesn't, he doesn't kind of seek permission to cause absolute mayhem in the temple. Why? Well, we're seeing that his, his courage to take a stand. His, his, his boldness. And John, in writing this gospel, he's writing to believers who know something of this pressure. They know something of what it is to be persecuted in a way that perhaps many of us are, it's just a foreign concept to, but some of us will know that the people that John's first writing this gospel for are experiencing persecution. And so perhaps this is John's way of saying, look, remember what happened to Jesus. Remember, yeah, he's promising life, life in an abundance, but he's still got flack for it. So don't be surprised if you take flack for following Jesus. I thought it was his abundant life. I thought, you know, I'd come through the doorway. Oh, it's an amazing new realm. Well, yeah, but as we've just been singing about, suffering then glory. Suffering and glory. A door open, new life, wonderful, amazing good news. But, but Jesus just divides opinion. Yeah, for a while, Nicodemus might go, oh, maybe, maybe not, not sure. I'll entertain it. But ultimately, Jesus doesn't allow us just to kind of, doesn't allow anyone 
just to rest on, well, he's a good guy, isn't he? He divides. And so what we see is either people want to kill him or people want to worship him. And ultimately, there's no middle ground. Even in this, he's saying a time, a time is coming when, the, when everyone in their graves will be raised. And there's two outcomes. There's no middle ground. Eternal perishing, separation, which John's a bit more discreet about, but eternal death or eternal life. Separation or worship. And our whole lives will be that. It's not kind of like some delicate balance. I sometimes wonder if, if that's the, the, the idea that we can have. In so many things, it's, it's well, kind of aim for middle of the road. You know, sometimes churches can say, by what they call themselves, a church can say, this is what really matters to us. You know, we could be like Sheffield Bible Fellowship. And so you would know, if that's what we were, we were all about the Bible. That's not bad, is it? Another church might say, Church of the Awesome Spirit of Power. Well, that's not bad either, is it? Well, why choose? Why just opt for one? You know, there's a whole, just both and, that's great. Uh, I was delighted um, to briefly come out of retirement on Christmas morning uh, and play the bass guitar up, up there. I didn't quite manage what Dave was doing this morning, which was playing and singing at the same time. Did you spot that? Um, so I came out of retirement. Back in the day, a uh, long time ago, I, I used to be a bit more involved in the worship team. And so I remember reading a book by some guy, really excellent book, Bob Cowflin. And he came up with this phrase for worship team. He said, he said undistracting excellence. He said, that's what we're aiming for as Christians. Because it's, it's all right to be good. But like, kind of like sanctified way of saying middle of the road, Christian music in a nutshell. Yeah, middle of the road, be good at what you do but you're aiming to be undistracting. So if people are going away saying, you know, someone really rocked that bass solo, then um, apparently <laughs> that wouldn't be good. <laughs> we want to be going away from a public time of worship saying, just Jesus rocks, doesn't he? <laughs> Jesus is awesome. Jesus is wonderful, rather than be distracted. So, you know, so aim for a balance, not too much, just enough, just right. You know, be courageous, don't be a coward. But like, don't go so crazy that you just end up being reckless because, you know, an overload of courage could perhaps just do other people damage, you know. So a right amount of courage, we might think. Yeah, be courageous. Things are in the balance. When it comes to knowing Jesus, let there be nothing in the balance about it. In the balance is lukewarm. In the balance is I can't really care. In, in the balance is uh, maybe I'm following him, maybe I'm not. In the balance is entertaining sin. In, in the balance is loving money and loving God. In, in the balance is compromise. In the balance is rubbish. But again, culturally we'll hear, you know, don't, don't take anything to an extreme. You mustn't be fundamental. You mustn't fundamentally believe something. Believe it in private, do what you like. You know, all these messages of just Christians, just mute yourself, please. Don't take yourself so seriously. Well, it's actually 
We are supposed to be overflowing with enthusiasm for Jesus. That is provocative in the world in which we live. Utterly positive in our response to him. Not just trying to measure out some enthusiasm. It's, it's life or it's death. It's knowing his presence or his judgment. And I might just come into land, to be honest. Um, we were seeing as the passage unfolds. We see, we see the Lord. We see him courageous. These are just headlines now because I want us to worship. Uh, we see him utterly courageous. We see him totally authoritative. How can he be so courageous? It's because he totally knows who he is. He doesn't need to ask for permission about what to do because he is the son of God. He describes himself as the son of man. You could look in Daniel chapter 7 to see uh, prophecies about the son of man. Jesus, Jesus is saying, that's me. I'm the one who comes into the presence of the ancient of days and is given all authority, power and dominion and everyone worships. I'm going to do this on the Sabbath, whether you like it or not. You can't say that you love God, but you resist me. We come as a package. It's a, it's a father and son business. And I'm at my father's business. He's careful to say, I'm not about my own business. I'm not independent. I'm not setting myself up as a rival. I'm working with my dad. I'm working with my father. And I want to do what pleases him. And he wants to share everything with me. And the family business is bringing life and judgment. I've got authority to bring life and I've got the authority to bring judgment as well. And his opponents are trying to judge him. They're trying to weigh up him. We've got our evidence. We've got our verses. We'll be the judge of what you're allowed to do. And Jesus is turning the tables on them and saying, no, I'm going to be the judge of what you're doing. And even Moses accuses you. You diligently study the scripture but you refuse to come to me. Incidentally, the beginning of the year is a, is a good time. You might identify with that message, are you right on the line, ready to go, or kind of still circling around and a bit, feeling a bit awkward. But you know, subject to your personality, subject to your life and all the rest of it, this is a great time to be thinking, how do I want to be drawing near to God this year through his, through his word? That's what Jesus is pointing to. He's saying, I've got this authority and to, and to prove it, well, John the Baptist, he testifies to me, but there's more to it than that. The works that I'm doing, the miracles, that demonstrates who I am and what my father says about me. And we can read about it all in there. They're diligently studying the scriptures, but they're not getting the point. And sometimes we could, we could get to the wrong point. Diligent study is, um, is a fleshy, worldly thing to do. So, um, so just go with the flow and go with your feelings. No, we're not going to be formed by them, we just, we just said. We're going to be formed by the one who's full of grace and truth. Don't diligently study the Bible as an end in itself so that you know more. Incidentally, you'll get to know more. You'll spot more connections. But getting into the word of God that we might know him, that we might kind of go through that doorway and find that we're relating with the one and only God who has sent his son and who is about a great work. This is supposed to provoke us. This is supposed to have us think. 
You know, sometimes that key discipleship question is asked, you know, who are you in private? What are you like in private? That's a good question to be considering. If God is judge and brings life, and I want to work with him and be in partnership with his business, I want to make sure that I'm not treasuring anything in my life that is out of step with what my God, the judge, says is good or not good. It's not me judging him. It's him and his word coming to me, bringing me life. But that life, that, the word kind of cuts. It brings life and it cuts us. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And we say, Lord, you're the judge. I'll follow you. It's not what I say is true. It's about you. Bringing conviction, but bringing life at the same time. Getting to know our God as we get into his word. This would be a great time to consider that. How am I going to do that this year? What's a plan that's going to work for me? A kind of an opportunity to to kind of take stock, make some decisions, maybe before life gets fully crazy again. But there is that question, what are we like in private? Oh, oh, uh, am I consistent as a follower of Jesus? Or is there just hidden sin that's being allowed to flourish? But let that not be the only question we're considering. Because the other discipleship question this might have us ask, in terms of our response to God, is... What am I like in public? <laughs> is my faith hidden when I step out the door? And are we just sucking up this message to be cautious too much? Please, I don't, I'm not trying to ride roughshod over public health. But there might just be something more at stake. If a church just totally goes quiet and goes in on itself, I'm not saying this is what we've done, I'm just saying this is the ground that we're fighting for at the moment. This is the battle. This is the area. Let's not just be private Christians doing our own thing. You know, let me do, I'll close with this. Um, I was just reading through 1 Peter in the Christmas break and seeing how he presents the, this sense of there's, there's just no middle ground. When he writes... Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, as you come to him, the living stone, here we get it, rejected by men, but chosen by God, and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We see this stark either or, life, death, light, dark, precious or rejected. And people, are stum people worship Jesus or they stumble over him. Verse 7, Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they, were, because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, is this not good news? That you may, what are, what are we to do? That you may hold, you might just, just find the middle ground. Just be kind of balanced and lukewarm. No. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong because you provoke something, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. I think the world is supposed to hear the church. And I think the world is supposed to hear the church and see what, did I just say the same thing twice? And <laughs> See and hear, declaring the praises of God who called us from darkness into light and seeing how we live, seeing good deeds that glorify him. That's my encouragement to us as we enter into a new year. Let's worship.